Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today on the podcast is Dr. Brian C. Stiller. He's a remarkable global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. He's been a friend of mine for a number of years. We work together in theological education, and it's just a pleasure to have him with us here at Beeson Divinity School. Thank you, Brian, for this conversation. Ah, Dean, it's good to be with you, to see you again. Thank you. I remember one time we were together was in the Holy Land, and our wives, your wife Lily and my wife Denise, along with a number of other presidents and leaders of seminaries uh, went to the Holy Land, and that was a remarkable experience. I'll never forget it. It was. There's nothing like walking the Holy Land world to know how the scriptures unfold, because it's a geographic theology, isn't it? It is. It emerged out of a geography, and so to walk that geography gives you a sense of what the, how the, the theology unfolded. Absolutely. Let's talk about your background. You're a Canadian, and you grew up uh, in a pastor's family, didn't you? I did, out in the prairies of Saskatchewan. Uh, five five kids in the family uh, in the early 40s and 50s. Uh, was greatly influenced by our small church, Pentecostal church, which at that point was really integrated with the larger evangelical world in our community, Baptist, Mennonite, Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, so forth. And then... Out of that world, I uh, was influenced by Youth for Christ as a boy. Mm. And I loved the larger evangelical, I loved my Pentecostal world, but I really enjoyed the larger Youth for Christ community that gathered on a, on a Saturday night. And that was an enormous influence on my life. And that was a movement that Billy Graham also was involved in. In, in. in the U.S., Billy Graham was the first staff member. And in Canada, Chuck Templeton, who was a, a famous, infamous evangelist who then turned atheist. But this was in following the Second World War. There was a bursting of interest among young people for the gospel. A Greek professor by the name of Tory Johnson started it in, in Chicago. And from there unfolded many parachurch agencies uh, that, that flourished worldwide. Uh, were you an evangelist, a preacher like uh, Billy Graham? Uh, I graduated from our denominational school. Then Lily and I were married. We went to the University of Toronto. And for a year, I did travel with our denomination and with Youth for Christ doing some events. But then Lily was expecting our first child. And I realized that my, my role as an evangelist was, was, was an idea, but it wasn't a vocation. Well, I'd say you are an evangelist, maybe not in that traditional way. Uh, your gift has been in other areas, but you are a proclaimer and you are a winsome witness for the gospel and have been in so many different venues. So somehow you got from Youth for Christ to uh, the World Evangelical Alliance. That's a big step. Kind of tell us about it. Well, after university, I started with Youth for Christ in Montreal and was with Youth for Christ as president for 16 years, greatly influenced by many of the people in InterVarsity and, and Youth for Christ. Uh, Jay Kessler, who was Youth for Christ president of the U.S., was a mentor of mine, as was Paul Little. In fact, I, I uh, assisted Paul Little as program director at the Lausanne Congress in 1974. You know, some people don't know that name, Paul Little. He was a Methodist, right? No, he was a Brethren. A, from the Brethren tradition. And he was involved with the InterVarsity and was a writer. Know, know how to give away your faith, how to give why away you faith. believe, yeah. 
know why you believe, so forth. One of the very important figures, I think, in encouraging uh, the sharing of the gospel That's with right. the whole generation. So you were in that era of formation. So that was my Youth for Christ experience. And then I, I became president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, which is a uh, member of the world body. The NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals in the U.S., is, is the American Association. And I spent 14 years there as a national voice doing television and creating a, um, a, a national voice for evangelicals in a community that was at that point overtaken by kind of an American fundamentalism that, and that fundamentalism sounded tinny in Canada. And evangelicals wanted something that was more indigenous to their own our own thinking and our own uh, Christian evangelical traditions. And so we built a strong alliance. Now, we did that for 14 years. And then in 1995, a school now called Tyndale University College and Seminary had gone bankrupt. And I stepped in as a, as a volunteer for a year, went full-time. We eventually turned, turned it around, turned it into a university and bought a new campus and built a large seminary. So that was my role up until I came into this current role. Yeah, I visited you, I think, when you were the president of Tyndale and saw the wonderful work that God was doing there and how you were leading them to a new campus and a new kind of mission and new era in their lives. So all these things, you've been an institution builder, you've been a networker, but I think, as I know you and hear you even talk about what you've done, at, at your heart, you, you are a witness, a witness for evangelicalism, but more importantly, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Interesting. You know, when you, when you make that comment, it causes self-reflection. And I, I guess I have never known a time in my life when I didn't love the Lord Jesus. I was nurtured by my parents. I loved to read the Bible when I was a boy. I loved to read about the gospel. I loved the missionary stories. Jim Elliott, when he died, it had such an impact on my life. So all my life, I've loved that, and I love the witness of Christ in its various ways, articulate, compassionate, revolutionary. However it's expressed, I love that witness of Christ. Now, you come from a Pentecostal tradition. I'm a Southern Baptist. Both of our traditions have been known sometimes for being sort of narrow and turned in on themselves. But your experience has led you in another way. Well, I did go to an Anglican seminary. That's where I did my graduate work at the U of T. And I, I went there. I wanted to get a breadth of the gospel. I wanted to understand historically some of the great, the great ideas and movements and people of the past. And so that kind of historical, broader theological experience out of an evangelical Anglican community provided that for me. Yeah. And that served you well in your work that you've done with the World Evangelical Alliance uh, talk about that. That will not be known to all of our listeners. What is it? How did it come to be? And what's your role in it? Let me come at it two ways. First of all, what it is. In the world today, there are three world Christian associations. The Va uh, and that's out of 2.4 billion people. The Vatican, Roman Catholics, are 1.2 million. Billion. That's half of the 2.4. The World Council of Churches is 500 million. And that includes 300 million Orthodox. And the World Evangelical Alliance represents 640 million. So there's the global composition of organizations. The World Evangelical Alliance was formed in 1846. It was in England. It was after the, uh, uh, the, the Second Great Awakening, uh, after the, the Wilberforce and the slavery issues. There were matters of uh, religious persecution in Eastern Europe. And so a number of people got together in London 
interested in breaking down denominational barriers and creating a, a fellowship and a unity among believers. And that's where WEA began in 1846. It's had a variety of, of histories, of course, over 150 years. But in 1942, the National Association of Evangelicals was formed here in the U.S. And that seemed to trigger globally the formation of other national alliances. So today there's 130 countries that have national alliances. So we are really a world networking of national alliances in all of these countries. And it's a, and then also we have, uh, we have special uh, status at the UN. We have an office in, in Geneva and much of our work is, de is devoted towards religious persecution and religious freedom. So both in the UN in New York and the UN in Geneva. So it's, it's a world body. It has a number of, of task forces and commissions, but our real focus is enabling these 130 national alliances to be vehicles of unity, of witness, of, of, of spiritual and physical activity as a, it, you may have a, some kind of disaster. It's a way of bringing people together to speak to the disaster. It may be an issue of religious persecution, pushing back against that. A variety of issues, but what it allows is these local national alliances to format response and activity in their own respective countries. And you are a global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. What is that? Well, interesting. I, it, in a sense, it means what I do, and I, and I do what it means, which is to travel the world encouraging younger leaders. Uh, I do a lot of networking with the Vatican and the World Council of Churches and with Muslims to help them understand who we are. Because to understand where we are today and where we were, I think is important to the conversation. So in 1960, 60 years ago, there were 90 million evangelicals. So 60 years ago, 90 million evangelicals. Today, 640 million. No other religious community of any kind has ever grown that fast in the history of the world. So when you look at that growth, you ask, what then can we do? What are the needs? What are the responsibilities? What kind of things might we do collectively as an evangelical community in issues of religious persecution, in issues of disaster, uh, other, other matters that concern the public. How can we work together and in what ways can we enable each other as, as faithful witnesses of Christ to assist society? Now, you've written a wonderful book. I want us to talk about it for a little bit called From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. Well, you've just been talking about this enormous surge in the number of evangelical Christians around the world. Why did you write this book, and what do you mean, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu? Uh, why I wrote the book? Well, as I traveled about, uh, I would be asked to speak at mission conferences and churches, and they would say, okay, don't give us a sermon. Tell us what's going on in the world. And I would begin to put on my, my scholarly hat that I would borrow from someone else and look at the issues globally, talk to missiologists, um, and identify reasons for the growth and, and why, and both accelerators for growth and the, and the, the shaping of, of this growing community called evangelicals. So that led me to, uh, to write the book. But I guess the key question was, how did we get from 90 million evangelicals 60 years ago to 600 and some today? I wanted to know, why did so many people say yes to Jesus? So that drove me to write it. What well, do you mean by oh, yeah, From Jerusalem to yes. Timbuktu? What's an interesting title. As I was writing, as I was working on the book, 
I had written, a, I had edited a book called Evangelicals Around the World, which you were a contributor to. And Todd Johnson, who's the center of global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell, uh, we were talking about a number of things, and he was, he was one of my co-editors. And as I was working on it, he came up with a map that showed the chain, the, the movement, the, the center of density. And this, this is important. The center of density of Christians, which of course began in Jerusalem in 33. That's where the church began. So that would be the globe, that would be the center of the density of Christians. But as the Christians move out across through Europe, over the next few hundred years, and then as eventually as they move down through Africa, up into England, across to America, Latin America, and so forth, that center of density began to move out across Europe, eventually out through Spain, and it, or in, in 19, in 2012, it landed in Timbuktu, Mali. That's the actual center of density of Christians. And what it does, it shows that the church has exploded in what we call the global south, which is Africa, Latin America, and Asia. So the so he, when he showed me the map, it just clicked <laughs> from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. That's, that's the story of how the gospel has spread. Now, you talk about the fact that we are living now in an age of the Spirit. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about this explosive growth, you've mentioned it um, much of it seems to me to be of a kind of spirit-led, Pentecostal, really, reality. That's your tradition, though you've gone much broader than that in your work in ministry. Why is that true, number one, the strong Pentecostal flavor of this growth, and why is that true, if it is? My sense, my thesis is this, that by the end of the 1800s, 1900, the Christian understanding of the Trinity was shaded so that the Spirit was caught under the shadow of the Father and the Son. You know, all the early creeds dealt with the, the divinity, the humanity of Jesus. The Spirit is always mentioned, but very seldom as his person, his gifting, and his anointing. That was never really a part of, of, of much of the history of, of, of the church. Uh, you have uh, Luther and Calvin talk about the Spirit as being the revealer of the truth. So he is, he is more within what he does with the Word than who he is and what his gifts, his gifting and anointing is. You have periodic outbursts like with the Wesleyan brothers and the Waldensians. You have moments where there is a kind of a, a, a bursting forth of spirit activity. But it took until the 20th century. So you have movements in India and Wales and then America. Uh, and you have the Pentecostal breaking through. And what it did, it, it gave people an understanding that the Spirit is a person, he is a member of the Trinity, he is active, he, is, he gifts his people, and he anoints his people. I think what it did, and this is the thesis that I, I think uh, has, has relevance, is that when the laity of the Church of God understood that they were anointed and gifted by the Spirit as much as a clergy, it released them to be the body, to be the church of God in their world, in their vocation, in their various countries. You didn't have to have a, a degree or a, a clergy anointing to preach or to raise the sick or to minister in some particular way. Now, it created an off, a, a, a great chasm within the evangelical church between the Pentecostals and the, and the, and the, and the evangelicals. That was bridged over in the, in the six, in the sixties and seventies by the charismatic movement. 
and what the charismatic movement did to to Im, to employ the activity of the spirit in the broader church the charismatic movement said tongues is not the evidence of the infilling of the spirit and neither are the gifts of the spirit dead by way of cessationism or because the bible uh, came together as a unit as many had said so the gifts of the spirit are for today but you don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the spirit and that what that did it released both Pentecostals and the broader evangelical Catholic and mainline world to, to be appreciative of the person and the work of the Spirit, invite him into their lives, and to allow that presence to empower them in ministry. And I think that's really, there are other factors that, that influenced this growth, but I think at the very core, the 20th century is marked by us knowing the Spirit. Now, you and I are raised in a world where our churches, the, the spirit was very much understood. But remember, a hundred years ago, the beginning of the 20th century, that was a very different world. And so it took this, this cataclysmic breakthrough to help us understand, uh, I think, at least be introduced to the person and work of the spirit. You know, I'm not a Pentecostal Christian. I, I don't speak in tongues. I've never had the gift of healing as far as I know. But when I hear and meet with Pentecostal Christians, there is a reality there that cannot be denied. Hmm. And I've often thought these people are just closer to the Lord than I am. They they have something that I don't have, and maybe I need. I'm, I'm open to that. So I have learned much and have been so grateful for the witness of Pentecostals. Uh, you know, you know, I'm involved in a movement called Evangelicals and Catholics yes. Together, and one of our finest theologians, Dale Coulter, is a Pentecostal theologian, and he's a very good one. One of our best contributors. So God is at work in lots of different places in the world beyond our little narrow traditional confines, isn't he? Yes, but if I could just give a, uh, a, a side note to this. I'm very grateful for the moving of the Spirit and the growth of the church. Uh, but as I look at the body of Christ in a, in a broader way, while Pentecostals may seem to be more empowered, it doesn't mean that they are as as dutiful spirit, spiritual it isn't it doesn't mean that their lives are spiritually enriched in devotion and faithful living i find often people who are not pentecostal show to me the deep the, the, the roots of faithfulness and devotion and christ likeness and sometimes i find with my pentecostal brethren they talk a lot about empowerment of the spirit but it may, in, in contrast, not have the depth of, of personal devotion or of Christ-likeness. So uh, just to kind of... Um, That's a good word. It's a kind of a mirror of my experience. Yes. And maybe we need to hold those together, maybe in some tension. Uh, but the, the point is, you know, the, the body of Christ is bigger than any of our denominations, oh, any of our streams that flow throughout it. But you have to say, when you look at the way Pentecostalism has been used since Azusa Street alone, uh, the impact it's had on on the world itself, and certainly the world Christian movement, is just enormous. And we've got to be grateful for that. Yes, we are. Yes. So, wonderful. Now, I want to ask you a question about the Bible. Word and Spirit, as I read the Reformation in particular, they wanted to hold these together. Not always successful in doing, but they, that was their effort. Uh, you can go off the track if you have word without the spirit, and there are excesses of the spirit manifestation without the word that lead to its own error. So how can we together talk about 
the coherence of word and spirit in a way that's both faithful to the Reformation, its best instincts, but also open to the new movings of the Spirit that come through Pentecostalism and other avenues. Uh, there's a uh, there's a drift, and it's an, and it's a it's can be a tragic drift, where the Spirit takes over, and as you and I know, when we talk about the Spirit, often that simply is myself Spirit. It's myself. It's my own inclination, intuition self-interest. And so that's why the, the marrying, the activity of the Spirit in relation, in the discipline to the Word, holds those kind of spirit, so-called spirit inclinations in tow. Mm. There are heresies today that, that multiply in many parts of the world. And often those are led by people who are more on the spirit-empowered side than the Christ-like side, if I can use that uh, that distinction. Uh, there are many instances. You've got uh, the Universal Church out of out of Brazil, which has a curious hybrid of Old Testament metaphor, actual the building of temples, uh, and they have millions of people around the world that also morph into what we would call prosperity theology. So I am deeply concerned about some of these things and. The, the fact that, that the word has, has been multiplied by translation into many languages, I think, is an indicator that these heresies that have gone off will be towed back by biblical discipline and training. And I think one of the great needs globally is, is Bible training. And so I encourage schools here in North America to partner with one or two other schools so that you give them the benefit of your own expertise and your insight because that's what's, that's what's needed. But there is another side to this that, 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 I'm, that interests me, and that's and it really comes out of the prosperity theology heresy. Now, as we know, heresies always begin with orthodoxy. Uh, orthodoxy is taken and slightly twisted. So, for example, the orthodoxy of the scriptures, my God will supply all your need. The heresy is, is taking that which is true and slightly twisting it and saying, yes, my God will supply all your needs, and if you do this, he'll make you rich. So I, I see this as a, as a global heresy, and I wonder how the Spirit is going to bring this into tow. But underlying that impulse or, the, or that, that attraction to the impulse of prosperity and, 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 and well-being is 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 a need. So, for example, let me use a, a mother in in uh, in uh, in Sierra Leone, and she doesn't have money to to look after her kids going to school that day, or the medicine, or the proper clothes. And she reads the same Bible that you do. My God will supply all your need. And so, so you and I live in a country where we have social uh, safety nets that will, if we really get into trouble, we'll probably be, be looked after. But if you're in this country, there's nothing. There's no job. There's no social uh, program. There's nothing to help you meet your needs. So how does God meet your need there? Well, it's interesting what some of the um, uh, the IMF and the World Bank and others have been looking at some places where there's been social economic lift. And one went into a, into a country and into a location, a, a community that was doing well economically and socially that was really lifting. And they said, you know, what are you doing that we aren't doing? We give you money and nothing happens. But you do your work and something happens. And they said, well, you ask the wrong question. And they said, well, what, what's the wrong question? They said, well, you ask the question, how much money do we need to give you? We ask the question, what is God's will? 
And when we figure out what's God's will, then we begin to work together in creating those jobs and that economy that serves each other and eventually gives gives a uh, a structure, an economic structure to the community. Now, my point of that is that the prosperity theology, it touches on needs around the world. People need social economic help. There's no money coming in from the outside. How do they create it? Well, if they believe that God has a will that I live well economically and socially, then the question is, what's the way to it? These prosperity the- uh, preachers come along, and they have self-aggrandizing means of encouraging you to go to a point of, of self-sufficiency. That's the heresy. So I'm interested in the broader question. Gen- often I find heresy comes back to orthodoxy. And my hope is that as this prosperity theology wears itself thin, as it runs itself into the ground, there will, that we will recognize increasingly the power of the gospel in bringing economic and social lift. How it does it, of course, will, will be respected, will, will, will work with respect to the locale and the dynamics of their own culture. But I see this as a, as a growing reality of the gospel witness. So there is a concern about prosperity gospel, but you use this term whole gospel. The whole gospel is not the same as the prosperity gospel, is it? Not at all. Um, I know that in our uh, historically in the early to mid part of the 20th century, we divided the world. This is Sunday. This is Monday. Uh, this is church. This is work. This is Bill Gaither. This is jazz. You know, we divided the world up. And we didn't, un- we, so that, that false bifurcation of life didn't understand that all of life is the Lord's. But we recognize that in today's, that our, to, our younger generation are simply recognizing that the gospel speaks to every part of life. There's not one aspect of the life, of, as the reformers said, there's not one square inch of creation that God doesn't say mine. There's not one aspect of my human life that's not a, a, of concern to the Father. So the holistic gospel is the whole gospel for the whole person. Wonderful. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Brian C. Stiller. He is a global ambassador of the World Evangelical Alliance, a good friend, a great minister of the gospel for many years in Canada and really all around the world. Thank you so much for this conversation, Brian. Thank you. It's been my joy to be here. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.